You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Passage for today is Genesis 2, verses 8 through 17. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are studying the book of Genesis, so I'm excited to continue that with you all. Uh, There's a professional uh, storyteller named Bobette Buster, and she's one of the most sought-after experts on storytelling. Pixar, Disney, DreamWorks, many others line up to consult her for their films, and the reason why she's so sought-after is because she understands the power of storytelling. She says it is through the act of telling and hearing stories that we become inspired. Through stories, we can envision a better life for ourselves. And the end result, in fact, is that we become courageous. So what makes us move through the world confidently? Stories that make sense of life do. Stories that warn us help us move through life confidently. Stories that spark hope in us help us move through life confidently. This is why Bobbitt Buster also writes, whoever owns the best story wins. She's not wrong. Whoever owns the best story wins. So have you ever wondered then why the church seems to be on the ropes all the time? It's not because we've lost cultural power, it's because we don't know our story. Uh, In the most emotionally cluttered time in history, the church should rise as a beacon of clarity because we have the story that swallows up all other stories. We have the story of all stories. But we are typically just as rudderless and confused as everyone else. We have the best story of all. We have the story of God pursuing a people for himself and for his purposes, and we need to know this story so that we can be emboldened by it. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do a biblical theological exposition of Genesis. So here's what biblical theology is, if that's a new concept to you. It's studying the organic development of the Bible's teaching so that we are interpreting particular parts of the story in light of the whole. I'll say that again. Biblical theology, it's studying the organic development of the Bible's story so that we're interpreting particular parts of the story in light of the whole story. So in other words, In the Bible, there's a network of images, there's a network of assumptions, there's a network of language, there's a network of symbols that are all woven through the entire narrative so that the Bible, the whole thing, is one coherent story with one ultimate aim. And the writers of the Bible who have these assumptions, this framework that they all share, this thought world that they're developing, these images and symbols and language, they're inviting us, you and I, to adopt this worldview, to adopt this story so we can move through life confidently, knowing what we're taking part in and what we're participating in and contributing to. So we're going to spend a great deal of time today wrapping our heads around God's story. And Genesis is the place to start because Genesis 
It's the seed that the entire Bible blossoms out of. Within Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is central themes that the whole entire Bible unpacks and we'll see also is returning to. So we're going to see God's big story today in Genesis chapter 2. So let's do it. First, I want to tell you the setting of the story, the setting of the story. It's in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. Moses writes, he records, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So you need to picture a place called Eden that has a garden in the east. If you need help picturing it, I drew a picture. It's going to be on the screen right here. It's pretty good, isn't it? I got an apple pen. I wanted to use it. So there you go. The garden, okay, it's Adam's home. It's a gift from God to him. Eden is the plot of land that his home resides on. And outside of Eden is uninhabited, uncultivated, wild, and chaotic world. That's what you should see there. These these three dimensions, if you will, of garden that happens to be in a place called Eden and then everything else beyond it. So Adam's existence is to commune with God in the garden, in this garden temple, but more than that, okay, he is tasked with expanding the borders of Eden into the world, thus making the wild wasteland outside of Eden a home for the world, a blessing to the world for the good of the world. So Genesis 1, 28 and 29 says this, listen up. God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So go, Adam and Eve, exercise dominion, subdue the world outside of Eden, okay? But then look what happens next in verse 29. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So notice that these plants and these trees that God provides for Adam and Eve, they're for food, but they're plants and trees that yield seed, which means what? The obvious, the obvious implication is that Adam is to go and plant those seeds from those plants, and he is to go plant those seeds from those trees out in the wasteland, outside of Eden, thus extending this garden sanctuary deeper and deeper and deeper into the world. So then the world will become, would not become this habitable place until Adam works the ground and he plants these seeds. So go to chapter two, verse five. We're connecting dots here. Look what we read. When no bush of the field, okay, so that's not the garden and that's not Eden. That's outside of Eden. So when a bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So why was there no vegetation? For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. See, Adam's job is to extend the boundaries of his garden in deeper and deeper into the world. And just to prove that there is an outer territory that's unlike the garden, that's in need of subduing, go to chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. It says this, Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the what? Beast of the field. Okay, so these beasts are not living with Adam in the Garden of Eden. They're outside in the uninhabitable, wild, chaotic wasteland. Beasts of the field, okay? Every bird of the heavens. And what does God do? He brought them to the man into the garden to see what he, the man, would call them. And whatever the man called them, that was its name. So the beasts are the field. God brings them inside to Adam's home in the Garden of Eden, where then he exercises dominion, he names them. So you see that Moses is keeping these jurisdictions separate. There's the garden, it's a place called Eden, then there's everything else. It's very clear if you read the text with sensitivity. Now, it gets more interesting. Uh, Chapter 2, 10 through 14. A river, it flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. So there's gold in this, in this place. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone, that's metals, they're there. The name of the second river is Gihon, it is one that flowed through the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth is the Euphrates. 
So this is usually a part of the account that we skip over. It doesn't really mean much to us. It's just describing water in this territory, right? But why mention stone and gold and metal along with this water? It's because Adam was supposed to take the raw materials of the world, this stone and metal, and build out this garden sanctuary. You should imagine this garden temple is to become a garden city. Have you ever thought about, about this before? Have you ever thought about Adam's job, his task like this before? Not just to plant seeds, yes, but also to build this garden sanctuary, this garden city for the good of, for the, good of the world. Read 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, here's what's interesting. I said before that we should interpret particular parts of the Bible in light of the whole. So we should interpret Genesis 2 here in light of what else we see in the Bible that might help us understand what's going on here. So Moses uses these exact same words, work and keep, to describe the activity of Levitical priests in the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 3, he says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. That's the same word used in Genesis 2.15, that Adam works the garden, works the ground. And then it says they shall keep guard over him. That word keep guard is the same word for keep. That Adam was to keep the garden. And it goes on and on. As they minister at the, te- at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent meeting tent of meeting, and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So you see that repetition there in that passage. Minister, guard, keep, minister, guard, keep. It's the same exact words in Hebrew that describes Adam's activity in the garden. And so, another, and that's just one passage. There's so many passages that describe the activity of priests in the temple and the tabernacle working and keeping. It's also translated as garden protect or worship and obey or serve and obey. And so we read that back into Genesis 2.15. Adam is in this garden temple and he's building this city for the good of the world, but he's doing it on guard. He's doing it in service. He's doing it worshipfully. These are all ways that the later priests in the tabernacle were described as. And so as Adam cultivates the ground and constructs with raw materials, he is building a bigger, expansive garden temple. He is advancing the kingdom of God on earth, you could say. Or you could also say this, he's invading more of earth with heaven. So you should picture the garden as Adam's base of operation. Or you can think about it like this. When the Allies stormed uh, the beaches of Normandy on D-Day and took that beachhead, then they did what? They moved outward in victory, conquering the rest of Europe. That's what you should imagine the garden in this place called Eden Eden as, this beachhead, this base of operation where Adam would come, fellowship with God, be refreshed, renewed in God's presence, then move outward to cultivate the ground and build a city that would bless the world. So get this. This This is so important. Before sin ever entered the world, humanity had a great commission. Fellowship with God, move outward, bringing about heaven on earth. That was always God's plan, even before sin ever entered the world. So that's the setting. This garden in a place called Eden where Adam fellowships with God then moves outward, invading heaven into earth. That's the setting. But now the drama or the tension of the story is in verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there as well. So this garden temple, it's a gift. You see that God just does everything to make this place a warm home, a life-giving home for Adam. It meets both emotional and physical needs. It's pleasing to the sight and good for food. But we also find out in this verse that this garden temple where Adam resides is a place of trust. 
every relationship hinges on trust. And Adam, if he's having a relationship with God, it hinges on trust because the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's not this tree that has magical fruit where if Adam ate it, sin would enter the world. Like that's not how we should understand this. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is a place where Adam and Eve would consult with God, receive his wisdom and instruction on any given matter. So in the rest of your Bibles, there's so many instances of good and evil, good and evil, that phrase together. And it's usually in a judicial setting where there's a choice between alternatives, yes or no, good or evil, right or wrong. And so again, we use the whole canon of scripture to interpret particular parts. And what we see is that this tree would be, would be a place where Adam comes and receives God's instruction. And so read a 2.15 through 17 again. It says the Lord took, Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it, okay? To guard it and protect it, to serve in it and to worship in it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day you eat it, you will surely die. So Adam, what you see is, I hope a full picture forming, Adam is to exercise dominion, yes, but in cooperation with God. Adam is to co-create a new world underneath God's leadership. In all of his activity, in all of his work, in all of his expending of his energies, he's doing it in consultation with God at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam were to eat of that tree, that would be his act of breaking trust with God, severing relationship with God, declaring his own independence from God. And so for example, okay, Adam's working, keeping the garden, he's protecting it. If, for instance, like a talking snake were to enter the garden and uh, begin to tempt them and call into question God's goodness, Adam, what he should do, hypothetically, is pivot and ask God immediately what we should do on this matter, what we should do about what this serpent is saying. And so we find that this great enterprise, dwelling with God, moving outward on his behalf into the world to bless the world, it hinges on trust. Will Adam and Eve believe that God only has their deepest happiness in mind? Or will they believe that he is not good? That's the tension, the drama of the story. Will they trust? And we all know the story. For another time, we'll get into it. But Adam fails to trust God. He sins. And the promise of death upon disobedience occurs. Remember, God said, in that day, you will surely die. And it's not primarily physical death. It's spiritual death. Because what happens is Adam and Eve are exiled out of the Garden of Eden, alienated from God's presence. Genesis 3, 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now, because Adam has broken trust with God, he is separated from God's renewing presence now, as you can see, exercising dominion, it will be hard. It will be joyless. It will be frustrating because it's no longer out of the overflow of abundant relationship with God and his presence. Now it's in place of it. Now it's to make up for its lack. Before, Adam was the son of God and that defined who he is, but now his work is going to define who he is. And therefore, heaven will not be ushered into earth. But that's not the end of the story. When it seems like the story has concluded, when it seems like this massive train wreck has occurred and there's no way this wrong can be righted, by God's grace and for his glory, God now begins to set in motion the plan to get us back to where it all began, back to the garden in his presence and into his vision for the world. So that's what I want to start with now or begin to do now is tell you now the story, how this all unfolds and how it connects back to Genesis chapter two. The plan that God sets in motion, it starts with Abraham. 
God elects him and then tells him in Genesis 12, one through three, it'll be on the screen, it says this. And pay attention as I read. And notice and see, is there any themes from Genesis 2 that appear in Genesis 12? God tells Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show them. Find a new beachhead. Find a new place of operation. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Like Adam was blessed and then sent to exercise dominion over the whole world. It seems like Abraham is given that mantle. God continues, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So do you see the themes continue, the themes of global dominion through one line of humanity that exercises dominion for the good of the world? You see that continuing through Abraham? And so this, this uh, transfer to Abraham what was the mandate and picture and vision in the garden is transferred to Abraham. It's actually very apparent to Moses as he's documenting history, as he writes this history in this account. So when Abraham and his family, interestingly, when they observed the land that God's promised them, where they're going to you know, move outward from to bless the world, it says this in chapter 13, verse 10, and Lot, one of Abraham's family members, his cousin or his nephew, lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, everywhere like the garden of the Lord. So in their minds, they see this land and they, they think of it as this new garden, like they're returning to the garden. And we know that this land that Abraham has promised that he's going to secure is what becomes Israel, the promised land. This is the promised land. It would be considered the new Eden, so the story of God dwelling with man and launching man into the world for the good of the world, it now continues through Abraham, continues through his family, who will eventually be called Israel and reside in the promised land. And so uh, sometimes we read Abraham's account and he's promised this land and we think that that's all there is to this. But actually, I'm telling you that Abraham in his mind, he understood that this was not a promise of just a piece of land. This was a promise of global dominion of the world. In fact, Romans 4.13 says this, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of not the land, but what? The world. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Abraham understands that he's being transferred this global enterprise that was originally Adam's. And his new Eden, his new base of operation is this promised land. So remember our picture of the garden, there's central, the garden, then Eden, then everywhere else. Well, now the promised land has an exact parallel. Go ahead and put that up there. There's Jerusalem in the temple, Zion, the city of God, the place of God's presence, and then there's the nation of Israel, which would be corresponding to Eden, and then there's the world. So Jerusalem is this temple city, the new garden. Israel is the new Eden, and the outside world is the rest of creation in need of God's dominion through his image bearers. So do you see like what God's doing here? God is building towards something. God is deliberate about redeeming his story. He has not just um, crumpled it up and thrown it away. God is redeeming the story that he began. So everything that God sets up, everything he instructs, everything he commands is purposeful. It's to reinforce this story that we are returning to the garden. We are returning to our human destiny. And this uh, intentionality, it, it doesn't just include the land and the promised land. It includes actually the entire temple system itself. The entire temple system is constructed to reinforce the story of God dwelling with man. So man can be launched into the world and also reinforces how this redemption is going to be made possible. So the temple system, it starts with the tabernacle, you remember? The tabernacle was a mobile temple. The people in the wilderness, Israel, as they were wandering for those 40 years, it was a set up, take down kind of situation. But then once they entered the land, the tabernacle became stationary until Solomon built the temple. So that's the arc of the tabernacle and temple. But interestingly, the tabernacle and temple, there are three dimensions to it. There's the courtyard, the holy place, and then the most holy place, which is called, in other words, the holy of holies. So what does that sound like? It sounds like the gradations of the Garden of Eden, right? 
Garden, Eden world, or the gradations of the land, temple, Jerusalem, Israel, the world. And now we have in the temple the most holy place, the holy place and the courtyard and everything beyond it. God is reinforcing something. He's reinforcing that he is setting in motion our return to the garden. He's trying to provoke our imagination and provoke our longings for return to his presence. Step by step in the unfolding narrative, God is working back to our beginning. Now, here's another thing that's interesting, more connections. Do you remember where the garden was? It was in the east of Eden, right? And do you remember where Adam and Eve were exiled and that cherubim with the flaming sword was set up? In the east of Eden. And so east becomes a big deal, a huge theme throughout this story. And the tabernacle and the temple, interestingly enough, the entrance was on the eastern side. Numbers 3, 38 says this, those who were to camp before the tabernacle, they did so on the east before in front of the tent of meeting towards the sunrise, guarding its entrance. There, Moses and Aaron and his sons guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. That's just one verse of many verses that show us that the entrance to the temple, the tabernacle, and then into the Holy of Holies was always on the eastern corridor. And the only way, okay, this is even more interesting, the only way that the high priest could enter the most holy place was from the east, and it was through atonement. And the only way Israelites could enter the temple on the eastern side was through atonement, right? Through sacrifice. It's like the entrance back to God's presence, deeper into God's presence, was always a journey that begins on the east. And the only way through was by blood sacrifice. It's almost like they would encounter the blade and the flame of the cherubim at the eastern entrance of the Eden. In fact, we're supposed to see this, that God is trying to provoke their imagination and telling them the story that I'm working towards your return to Eden through the cherubim, through the threshold, through the eastern corridor. In Exodus 36, 35, it says this, he made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And so in the tabernacle, the very veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, there was cherubim sewed into it. In Exodus 26, more of the same. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twined linen and blue and, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and the veil shall separate for you the, most holy, the holy place from the most holy place. And then, last line, but not insignificant at all, you shall put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. And if you don't know, on top of the mercy seat were two cherubim that were forged permanently. And so get this, every time an Israelite entered the temple from the east to offer sacrifices by the sword and flame, and every time a Levitical priest entered the holy place from the east to offer sacrifices by the sword and the flame, and every time the high priest entered the most holy place from the east once a year to offer sacrifices by the sword and flame, they acted as a new Adam crossing through the cherubim and entering the presence of a holy God. They were enacting the story in faith, believing that there would be a day they returned to the garden. And so for those who lamented the loss of Eden, the tabernacle and the temple, it was a glimpse into glorious news, which is God is working to get us back to where it began, back to the garden temple, where then we move outward to bless the world. So it shouldn't surprise us that when the temple is built by Solomon, it's constructed with garden imagery grafted into it, wooden beams exposed in the ceilings. Read 1 Kings 5-7 through on your own time and see all the garden detail that's put into the temple to provoke the longings for their turn to Eden. Now, another, another element of the Garden of Eden, that, that tree of life, that's pretty important, right? 
immortality, living forever, does that play a part in God's ongoing story? Does that play a part in, in the community's consciousness and imagination? If you read Exodus 25, God has the Israelites construct a golden lampstand with a base, stem, branches, and flowers all out of gold. They were seven lamps on seven branches, which would light up the holy place, remind Israel that God was the light of their life. He alone provided eternal life. And this lampstand, the menorah, it has an eerie similarity to a tree. And the whole point is to symbolize the tree of life, to provoke a longing for return to the ultimate garden where death will be no more. So I hope you see that there's this community consciousness that God's getting them back to the garden, that God's getting us back to, guard, to the garden. <clears throat> now, the only piece that's missing now in this story is a new Adam, a new Adam who's going to lead us back from the east, back uh, from the east, back into God's presence, so we can reside in the garden and fulfill our mission. So you know who almost became this new Adam? You know who tried to be this new Adam? Solomon did. When he becomes king, you remember the story God asks him what he'd like and Solomon replies, give me wisdom, great wisdom so I can rule this nation. First Kings 3, it'll be behind me. He says, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern what? Between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It's almost like Solomon is asking to be the new Adam who consults with God, tr keeps trust with God, add a tree of knowledge so he can rule on God's behalf in line with his will. And so God uh, grants him what he's asking for. And then what does Solomon do when he, when he uh, gets what he's asking for to, to have the wisdom to discern between good and evil? It says in, in verse 15 of that same chapter, and Solomon awoke and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant, where those two cherubim would be sitting on top of, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So the first thing that this quote-unquote new Adam does is he goes to the garden temple. He crosses through the cherubim by sacrifice into the most holy place. That's where this Ark of the Covenant would be. And then he begins his reign by fellowshipping with God and being a blessing to others, a blessing to the world, throwing a feast for all his servants. So you can see that even in the, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament and in the community imagination, there's a longing to return and there's an anticipation for a new Adam. So then, it's no surprise that Jesus is called all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Colossians 2, verse 3. Or in 1 Corinthians 1, he's called the wisdom of God. Jesus, it's like he's this new Adam who perfectly trusts the Father every step of the way. He's the Adam that Adam and Solomon never were. He embodies uh, somebody who lives before God, consulting God on any matter, living in wisdom of the knowledge of good and evil. It's also no surprise then that John calls Jesus the word, the logos, right? In this word logos, it has serious Old Testament density in it. If you were to go to Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as a woman who was there at the beginning, who God used as a tool to create the world and to, to design the world. And in the Hebrew mindset and in the Greek mindset, they would see the word logos and associate it with the wisdom that's embedded within the fabric of creation. Jesus is the logos. He is the wisdom of God. So the perfect wisdom of God that Adam forfeited, that Solomon couldn't continue in, it took flesh and faithfully lived among us, proving to be the true, new, better Adam. That's who Jesus is. But then Jesus, this perfect man who lives in perfect wisdom, embodying the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he becomes the perfect sacrifice. He leaves his most holy place in heaven. He comes to the world, dies as the perfect lamb of God, makes atonement once and for all so that you and I can cross every threshold, distancing us from God and now reside in God's presence 
permanently. So have you ever wondered why when Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they all record that immediately after that, the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place is torn from top to bottom in two. That's a significant detail, right? But it makes sense in the backdrop of the story because now that Jesus has provided full and final atonement, there is now no separation from God's presence. We're no longer waiting for an Adam who's going to take us by the hand and lead us from the east through the cherubim into God's presence. It's been done. So now what? Okay, here, what is it, February 15th or something, 2024? Where are we at in this story? Where are we at? I don't actually know if it's February 15th, guys. I have two kids. Okay, I don't know. You're all checking your phones. I don't know. I don't know. Tell me later. Where are we at? Where do you think we're at? Theologically speaking, where are we at in this story? And you might hesitate to answer because the answer is somewhat shocking. You don't want to say it out loud because it seems like it's too good to be true. But the correct, the absolutely correct theological answer is we're back in the garden. Now, it may not feel like that because we're not quite yet there. We will be one day fully, but we're in the already not yet. The kingdom's already been initiated. The kingdom's already been launched. The garden reality, dwelling, God dwelling with man, that's right here, right now. And so we're back in the garden. That is the part of the story that we currently reside in. And just to sell you on this, that this is not me making this up, this is absolutely theologically, biblically true. When Jesus resurrects and launches a new creation, he does it in a garden in John's gospel, showing us that if we join Jesus, we're in this new creation and we're back in the garden with him. He's our new Adam. He's our new champion. Further, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, he describes his ministry like he's a gardener and he describes the church like it's a garden, read with me. It'll be behind me. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. He's talking about the church right now. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now look at this last two sentences. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Hmm, interesting, like they're being cultivated. The ground, God's building. Hmm, almost like we're a temple or a tabernacle. And then the following verses, that's exactly what Paul says, that he is a master builder and Jesus is the foundation upon which he builds. He says in 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you and I, church, are that temple. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. We're the temple. We're the new temple. We are the place of God's presence. It's like we're back in the garden. More? You want more? Ephesians uh, 2, 18. He describes the church like this. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation, that's temple language, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Even Peter in 1 Peter sees the church as the new temple. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be the royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. And even the author of Hebrews says this, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's not talking about literal Jerusalem. He's talking metaphorically about the kingdom of God advancing here available now among us. And so theologically speaking, where are we at in the story? The Bible seems to say very explicitly that we are the place of God's presence. We are back where it all began. 
And now all of this is possible because of one monumental event, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the sending of the Holy Spirit, God's presence literally taking up residence within us. And the Holy Spirit, it's interesting, in, in the New Testament a number of times, he is called the Spirit of Jesus. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit's called the Spirit of Jesus? Which, that should, should communicate to us something. Uh, that the wisdom and knowledge, the perfect knowledge and wisdom of Jesus that he embodied, right, as this person who lived before God in perfect trust, that now is put within us if we have the spirit of Jesus in us. Now we have the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of wisdom. It's like as we walk around as living temples, moving temples, that we daily, moment by moment, consult with God at the tree of knowledge, good and evil. If we have the spirit of God living within us. And then even more, one other detail. Proverbs, it's interesting, collapses wisdom, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, with the tree of life. That all who live wisely it's as if the tree of knowledge is within them. Proverbs 3.18 says, wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Proverbs 11.30 says, the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. So if we have the wisdom of God indwelling us by the Spirit, that also means we have the power of immortal life indwelling us, the tree of life within our very beings. So right now, what I'm saying is in the middle of history, we are the garden temple. The church that gathers together is the garden temple and every individual Christian who calls upon the name of the Lord and is filled with the Holy Spirit is the new garden temple. And one day the whole world will be God's temple when the new heavens and new earth occur. So that's the story. That's the whole thing. But I want you to recall now that this garden temple you and I gathering, you and I individually. It's not static. The story, the story is still rolling. The story is still going. The story is still being written and we are participating in it. We, as the Garden Temple, are to move outward and just like Adam was supposed to, we are to extend the boundaries of God's presence across the globe. That's Adam's commission and now it's our mantle. It's been passed on to each one of us and to this church. So now we pick up where Adam left off. We move outward from God's garden presence into the world for the good of the world. Now we talk the mission of the church because of the story. The mission of the church. Remember, remember um, who, whoever has the best story wins. Remember that? We have the best story. So what's your story? What story are you telling yourself? What story are you living in? How do you self-understand? And how do you understand your world? If you're a Christian, the story is that we're back in the garden and now we're to move outward for God's glory and for the good of the world. But there's one difference between Adam and us now. And it's this. We don't fear punishment. We don't fear exile. We don't feel fear defeat. We don't fear failure. Because the new Adam has promised and sealed that promise by his blood that we will move out in victory. Matthew 16, verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, representative of the apostles, who then conceived the church, and that's you and I. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So when Jesus commissions us as the church and individuals to go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, I am with you always to the end of the age. When he gives us that mandate, we're not looking out into the world with a chance of defeat. We're looking out into the world with promised victory, with promised success. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. And what are gates? That's not offensive tactics. That's, the, that's, that's defensive language. We're storming the enemy. We're storming into the darkness. We are taking ground. We are moving out into the world. This is the mission of the church because this is our story. So Jesus sees the church as succeeding in this new Edenic mandate. And the mandate is to make disciples of Jesus and bring them into maturity by preaching the gospel and announcing the good news of the kingdom of Jesus on the basis of his atoning work. So here's what we do. Like Paul, we 
obsess, and I use that word intentionally, are you obsessing over how you can leverage every resource you have, the time that you have, the opportunities that you have, and the giftings that you have to create space to preach the gospel to other people so they can be brought into the story and be part of this mission? Paul says, I pour myself out like a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. He says, I refuse to build on another person's foundation. He says, we declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So we call people to new life. We call people to repentance. We call people to freedom. We call people to forgiveness. That's what we are meant to do. But also don't make the mistake of separating the Edenic mandate Genesis 1 and 2 from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Yes, we're to go make disciples, but it's totally connected to God's vision in the beginning, which is to go into the world and exercise dominion and subdue the world, represent me, and bring heaven to earth. And so you should not separate your work, your activity, your creativity, your calling, your responsibilities from your gospel announcement. In fact, they go together. Your creative energy, your unique giftings, your opportunities, whatever they may be, they're all avenues for gospel declaration. They are how we bear witness to the gospel. They are how we adorn the gospel and make it beautiful. So think about Jesus's ministry. He didn't just preach repentance, did he? Jesus overturned every evidence of fallenness and sin around him. He spent a great deal of time and energy healing, casting out demons, counseling people in distress, overturning tables in the temple and denouncing social injustice. Now, why would he do that? Because that's what Adam would do as he went into the world. He would have brought order to it. He would have advanced the kingdom deeper into it. He would have extended the boundaries of the kingdom of the garden temple wherever he went. And so now we're different. We're we're no different. Our hope and prayer should be to bring renewal to the world around us and in so doing, make disciples of Jesus. So did you know that Christians throughout time have lived in the story, caught this vision and run with it? Do you know Christians were the first to come up with welfare? Like that was, the, that was the church's idea, to care for the poor. Did you know Christians were the first to build hospitals? Did you know Christians were the first to build orphanages? Did you know Christians were the first to uh, do adoption, to practice adoption on the basis of mercy, not social advantage? Christians, did you know, have always been on the cutting edge of research and innovation and medicine. Uh, I have, you know, friends who are pastors in Baltimore, you know, a major metropolis, and they say people come to their church because they can't believe that the best people in their arena, doctors and researchers and artists and musicians, are Christians. Christians have always been the greatest contributors to art and culture. It's because Christians of all people have every reason to move out into the world as a blessing to the world because we are garden people with a gospel message. And so I want to close up by asking ourselves, Citizens Church and us individuals here, a question. How are we going to move outward, preaching the gospel and bearing witness to it without losing our souls? Meaning getting wearied, getting exhausted and discouraged, losing steam and quitting. We live in a time where so many, you know, people in my vocation, pastoral ministry, are just dropping like flies. So if we're going to actually take on this mantle as garden people with a gospel message, how are we going to make sure the mission moves forward in full force without falling apart? And so as a church, we do this through fidelity to Scripture. We do this through fidelity through scripture because we believe in the authority and the infallibility of God's word and we believe that God's word is sacred. But more than that, we also believe that God's word is sufficient. So that means that there's not a pressing question of our time that the Bible does not answer. That means there's not an action that we could take that is not in some way shaped or influenced by God's word. And so therefore, as a church, it's really important that we keep watch on our doctrine, 1 Timothy 4, that we contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, Jude 3, 
that we contend for the historical doctrines of the faith. If not, what happens? The garden is compromised. It also means that our moral and ethical vision for life is determined by the Bible. So our politics, our sexuality, our position on family and marriage and life, as well as how we think about money, how we think about work, how we think about our priorities, how we think about marriage, they're all brought into alignment with God's word. And so we do this, practice biblical fidelity, not because we want to be superior to anyone, not because we want to look down at the world and say, we got it right, we got this badge of honor, we wear it on our sleeves, we're, we're right. That's not why we do it. We practice biblical fidelity because we trust that God's wisdom is for our flourishing, and we know that the mission of the church is entirely dependent upon the church's integrity. So if the church compromises, if the church grows soft, then the mission is at stake, and the mission does not move forward, at least not through Citizens Church in Annapolis. We don't want to lose our distinctiveness. You know, BJ, our missionary in Sweden, he's in an absolute post-Christian society. He's evangelizing to people whose great-grandparents were Christians. And he talks to them about basic Christian beliefs. And it's like another language to these people. And BJ says, what works? You know what works really well while we're seeing people get saved? Because we keep Christianity weird. Keep it weird. We're not trying to cover it up. We're not trying to just like make it more uh, easy to swallow. We keep it weird, we keep faithful, we practice biblical fidelity. And because we practice biblical fidelity as a church, it means that we practice church according to the Bible. And so this is really important. We then preach the word, we sing the word, we read the word, we pray the word, we see the word through the Lord's Supper and baptism. Why do we do all these things every Sunday we gather? It's because the Bible tells us this is how we should worship. This is how we get renewed and filled up. If we're gathering in God's garden temple, this is how we receive his life. This also means, and this is really important, not because I think it's an ax I need to grind, but because this is a moment to teach on why we practice biblical fidelity and how this all makes sense biblically. Uh, this also means we practice church discipline. This isn't because we're mean, but it's because the church's effectiveness, again, it hinges upon its integrity. So you remember in Genesis 3, that serpent got into the garden and began to tempt and deceive and twist. Remember that? That happened because Adam was passive. That happened because Adam allowed space for it and compromised. And the unclean serpent got into the holy garden. And then the mission fell apart, didn't it? And so that's why Paul, it's interesting, and in how he talks about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, he writes this church and he commands them to excommunicate a person who's sleeping with their stepmom. And he says this in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Like the church, our job is not to judge the world because they're not standing up for the same thing. That's not our business. That's not our job. He says though, it is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, so therefore, purge the evil person from among you. And it's interesting, there in verse 13, that's taken from the Torah. That's taken from a part in Moses' writing, where Moses is told, is telling the people of Israel, that if there's anyone who's not abiding by the law of Moses, who's living in willful disobedience to the law of Moses, they're alienated and separated from the community. Because, again, the mission of God's people, the mission of his temple, the church, is dependent upon our integrity. So that's us as a church. We practice biblical fidelity. Everything we do revolves around scripture. It's our final authority. But also there's you, individually. You have to keep your house in order. You have to make sure that your garden is kept. You must be sure that your your soul, your spirit, yourself is healthy spiritually, that you're tending to the soil of your own soul through spiritual disciplines. So here's what this looks like for you. If you want to be a person who's moving out into the world effectively and powerfully, do you have a relationship with God through scripture? Like are you as a follower of Jesus 
frequently and routinely coming before his word and intensively internalizing it. Like I'm telling you, if, you, if your rhythm with scripture is just read five minutes of it and then call it a day and wrap up, you're not going to be moved. You're not going to be electrified. You're not going to be formed spiritually. It takes a while sitting there for something to click. So do you have a relationship with God through scripture? And I know sometimes reading the Bible, it's discouraging or maybe even boring because you don't maybe get something from it. The wrong, ex- the wrong expectation for reading your Bible is fireworks. Like you're not going to get fireworks every time. What you should want is nourishment. And you don't remember what you had for lunch last week, but you know it nourished you. In the same way, we come to Scripture knowing that it nourishes us even when we're not conscious of it. Do you practice Sabbath? This can be a sun, sundown to sundown practice, a 24-hour period of putting my phone away, putting work away. This is my counter-resistance to the world. I am not what I produce. I am who I am before God, His beloved. Do you practice that kind of Sabbath in your life where you create stillness and space in your life to delight in God and be refilled by Him? Or do you practice this just in the mornings, in silence and solitude, letting your mind catch up with your body? The reason why so many Christians, I think, are ineffective and not moving into the world powerfully is because we have so much anxiety and distress and whatever going on in our inner being and our inner man, and we haven't taken the time to sit in silence and solitude and let our mind actually catch up with, with, with what's going on in our bodies. You know, Jesus, it says a number of times in the Gospels, went out to the wilderness by himself while it was still dark and everyone else was sleeping to practice just this, silence and solitude with the Father. And Jesus is the most powerful missionary we've seen. He changed the world. How about fasting? Do you practice fasting? You're starving your body so that your body reminds you to pray. You know, usually our bodies are our greatest enemy. They, they tempt us towards gluttony. They tempt us towards lust. They tempt us towards workaholicism. Fasting flips it all on its head and makes your body your ally. It nudges you into God's presence continually. Lastly, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? And what I mean by this specifically, this practice of prayer is coming to the all-knowing, all-seeing God with your head and your heart. You know, exposing yourself before him and asking him to search you and know you and lead you. Do you have a practice of prayer installed into your life where you're actually vulnerable with God and allow him to do something in you, to create change in you, to convict you, to put a thought in your mind, to lead you. This is all really important. Scripture, Sabbath, silent solitude, fasting, prayer, because behind powerful ministry is a powerful person. So if we're to move out effectively, we must have our house in order here as people who believe in the authority and sufficiency of scripture, but also you and I individually practicing spiritual disciplines and having an actual living, vibrant, spiritual relationship with God. Habakkuk 2.14 says, the earth will be filled with knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This means that God's story has a trajectory, has an ultimate aim, and the aim is that one day the whole world will be his garden sanctuary. You and I, Citizens Church, we're invited to step into this story and play a key role in it. God's inviting you into the story, and we ought to respond. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and give you thanks that you did not abandon humanity when you had every right to and could have. But instead, you, in your grace and for your glory, worked towards redemption and set in motion a story that would get us back to the beginning, back to life before you, life with you, living on your behalf. And so, Lord, I pray that we would begin to change the way we think, change our framework for life, seeing ourselves as this new garden temple, as a new humanity, dwelling with you and moving outward to bless the world. God, change the way we think. God, we are sorry. We repent for the day-by-day minutia that we do and practice where we just go and clock in, clock out, come home, 
and go through the motions. Lord, you are sending us as your people, as missionaries, going into the world, representing you through all that we do. And so God, fill us with your spirit. Cast out all fear within us. God, we are yours. This church is yours. We just simply say, have your way with us. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.